Hello and welcome to Search for Truth. Thanks for tuning in. Nothing but Christ crucified is our theme on Search for Truth and we've talked number five today. So our Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, is talking about biblical church discipline. It's a subject drawn from the Apostle Paul's experience of the Christians in the church at Corinth, as recorded in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, a Greek city uh, of the time and uh, quite well populated. So let's hear more from Brian as he starts by relating something from his own experience in his worldwide missionary work. Thanks. As I sat chatting to the man before me, who was earnestly applying for local church fellowship, I asked him what he felt was drawing him to request church fellowship. I confess I was a little surprised by his response. Biblical church discipline, he said. Perhaps my expression signalled to him that this wasn't the answer I was expecting, so he hastened to explain. He'd become quite disillusioned by the immorality which had been allowed to go unchecked in Christian circles he'd previously been associated with. He spoke of those who still retained their office, even after their affairs became public knowledge, and had felt this didn't sit right with Scripture. He was now sure of this after seeing biblical church discipline being practised. Together we looked at the Apostle Paul's instructions to the Corinthian Church of God in chapter 5 of the first biblical letter to them. Paul began there, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. What a scandal this was, even in a place like Corinth, a port infamous for its loose morals. The ancient city of Corinth, the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, was not only located on the main east-west land route, but it was also a major seaport of that day. It was a cosmopolitan community of Romans, Greeks, Jews and others. The city was notorious for the wickedness and immorality that flourished there. Pagan religion centred in the worship of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, known to the Romans as Venus. Those in the Christian community there were not only influenced by their former backgrounds, but were also daily challenged by the world in which they lived. Corinth soon was regarded as the third most important city of the empire after Rome and Alexandria. The city of Corinth in the first century, with a population estimated to be as high as 200,000, has been described as a wide-open boomtown. It boasted two harbours and was strategically located, thus enhancing its reputation as one of the leading commercial centres of southern Greece. Sailors and merchants from every city and province, and therefore from every race and religion, passed through Corinth. It was truly cosmopolitan in nature. Not unexpectedly, Corinth became notorious for luxurious and debauched or loose living. Although virtually every pagan deity had a cult following in Corinth, its chief shrine was the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and life, where as many as 1,000 temple prostitutes were reported to have conducted their business. Sexual perversion and immorality of every conceivable sort were rampant. Because of the luxury and vice of Corinth, the word Corinthianize, that is to fornicate, was coined as an infamous sign of the wealth and immorality for which the city was renowned in the ancient world. 
It was, however, in just such a place that the grace of God appeared, for here Paul spent a year and a half preaching the gospel. We should perhaps say that Corinth's reputation comes from what we know it to have been like prior to its devastation in 146 BC. And that should make us careful not to read the old city's character into the new city. But having said that, it's unlikely that new Corinth established a vastly different reputation from old Corinth. The church in Corinth was composed largely of Gentiles, the majority of whom were at the lower end of the social ladder. As Gordon Fee has noted, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviours that required radical surgery without killing the patient. Even in this lax, cosmopolitan setting, it was unheard of to be sexually active with one's stepmother, But as Paul opens this chapter, we discover this is exactly what was to be found in the church at Corinth. And what's more, it was being tolerated. But Paul makes clear that this is something not to be tolerated as he continues from verse 3. He says, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in mind, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, And I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The words seem chilling, don't they? To be delivered to Satan. But as Paul clarifies at the end of the chapter, what he's commanding them to implement is the removal of the seriously erring brother from the fellowship of the local church. The Bible informs us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's 1 John 5 and 19. As believers, we've been rescued from the domain of darkness prior to being transferred to the kingdom of God's Son, Colossians 1.13. And so this language graphically depicts the dramatic action of once again being set outside of the church community. Although one of the purposes of biblical church discipline is to punish, there is a salvation mentioned beyond the destruction here. The destruction in view here is of fleshly behaviours, and the envisaged restoration is in the present day of service for the Lord Jesus. This emphasises that another major goal of such disciplinary action by the local church is the recovery to Christian fellowship and service of the backslider, once he or she has found repentance. One further purpose of the biblical discipline of excommunication comes up next in Paul's words as he continues further, now from verse 6. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This brings us to the testimony of the church. What reputation would it have if such serious sins were left unpunished? What deterrent effect would there be on others? The local church is a colony of heaven, and the lives of those who comprise it should reflect the values of the God of heaven. 
Our banner heading for this series of studies in Corinthians is Nothing But Christ Crucified. It was Paul's intention that this would be his theme in all his preaching and teaching among them. And so here, at this point, he again brings them, and us, to the cross, where Christ our Passover had been sacrificed for us. Paul's recalling the first of the Jewish holy days in their annual calendar. Each year, they were an anniversary remembrance of their national deliverance from the land of Egypt where they'd been slaves. In God's deliberate design, unblemished lambs had been sacrificed so that the judgment of God on Egypt passed over them and they were set free while Egyptians in every home fell under God's righteous judgment for their pagan idolatry along with their harsh treatment of God's chosen ones. Much later in history, John the Baptist would declare Jesus as being the Lamb of God in John 1 and verse 29. Christ died for our sins, that we might be no longer in dominion to sin. A holy lifestyle should follow our conversion, just as the days of unleavened bread annually followed the Jewish Passover sacrifice. The Apostle spells out his take on the meaning for us of these rituals. Once we endorse by faith Jesus' sacrifice as being for us, we should remove all malice and wickedness from our lives as conscientiously as the Jews were to remove all traces of leaven from their homes in those past days. And now from verse 9, Paul goes on further to say, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In case there should be any misunderstanding, the Apostle Paul distinguishes the principles governing the extent of our association with sinners outside the church from those governing our association with those who were formerly part of the local church. We will meet among our neighbours and colleagues those who are as yet unsaved and unchurched and whose lifestyles are decidedly non-Christian as judged by the Bible standards. We are not to shun these people but love them for Christ's sake as we try to introduce them to God's saving grace. Although we cannot approve their behaviours, we can still accept them as people loved by God. There's to be a different stance with those believers whose lifestyle choices, while once within the community, the church community that is, resulted in them being rightly placed once again outside of it. We are no longer to fraternise with them as before, for that would surely signal that what they did and what's happened because of it is no big deal to us. It is a big deal, and we want them back, but not with the same thinking they had before. We should never be beyond a kind action towards them, and never treat them as an enemy, for sure. But there has to be a change of stance, which reflects the fact that they are under biblical discipline.
As usual, I remind you that uh, there's a booklet available to accompany this series. And if you'd like a copy, please write in, making sure to let us have your postal address, of course, and ask for the title, Nothing But Christ Crucified. If you like, we can put you on our mailing list to receive new booklets automatically as they come out. And if you'd like that, just let us know. You can order by email or by post, and here are our contact details so that you can make a note. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN4 8DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. You might be interested to know that many titles of Search for Truth transcript booklets have been turned into ebooks and are available at amazon.co.uk forward slash Kindle hyphen ebooks. Just type uh, Search for Truth series into the search box and there you'll find them. So thanks for the pleasure of your company today. It's been great to have you with us and I hope you enjoyed the talk and found it uh, helpful. So do join us again next week, if you can, for another study in this series. Until then, very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. Goodbye and may God richly bless you as always. <laughs>